settled. Yeah, it's a great spot. It's a great spot. I know Fort Collins pretty well, touring through Colorado. I've definitely played a couple of shows there, but Fort Collins was the place. That's the first place. It's northern Colorado, correct? Yeah, we're about an hour, 15 minutes north of Denver. Okay, and it's right near the border because I mean, that was the first place I, I remember when, when weed first became legal, we were on tour. Uh -huh. and Collins was like the first place you could hit that had a dispensary, if I remember correctly. <laughs> Probably. That's awesome. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're not from there originally. Where are you from originally? So I grew up in Minnesota um, in a suburb of Minneapolis, Edina. Okay. Um, I spent a few years in my childhood in New Jersey, and then my parents moved back to Minnesota. What part um, of Jersey? Uh, Chatham. Chatham. Okay. Yeah, I'm from North Jersey, uh, Bergen County. Okay. Sopranos cool. country. It's what country? Sopranos country. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I lived in Seattle. I moved to Seattle uh, after I graduated college in 91. Okay. Um, or a couple years after I graduated college. I lived in Minneapolis after college for a few years and then moved to Seattle and just happened to be there when you know, just before Nirvana's Nevermind album came out and Pearl Jam's 10 album came out. And I just wound up in the middle of this huge music scene, which was, which was a lot of fun. And that's kind of what got me into doing concert art and things like that. Um, and then in the summer of, uh, my wife and I decided to move to New York city. Hold on, let me stop you there. Hold on. We got a couple of things I want to ask. Yeah. Uh, first, you said suburb of Minneapolis. That's already a huge music city within itself. Were you going? Were you involved? Were you going to see any kind of shows? Were you close enough? Did you see any shows in Minneapolis growing up? I uh, I did. I um, I was kind of a late bloomer with music. My my college roommate likes to give me a hard time anytime I I try to argue about music with him. He says, "Yeah, you and your little fucking shoebox." Yeah. I showed up with a shoebox full of cassettes and that's all I really knew about music. And it was, it was not a lot. Were you doing art at that time though? Yeah, I was, do I was drawing and, but uh, it was really more kind of after college, I started going to concerts. I lived in Minneapolis and then Seattle and that's, I really delved into it. I worked at record stores and I worked at a Ticketmaster outlet. So oh, shit. You know, wait in Minneapolis. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. For people who have no, I mean, I was, I'm 34, but I mean, I can remember the last Ticketmaster outlets in the mall in New Jersey. There uh -huh. was like what, a, and you know, obviously no longer there, but it's fun. Well, okay. I, now my brain's going wild. It's always been a, I've collected all of my concert ticket stubs throughout the decades. I've yeah. bought hundreds. And cool. it's always, I, I want to make a, a kind of custom made glass uh, coffee table with it. That's but, so I mean, cool. Yeah, because, you know, I mean, you know, we'll get into it. You, you know, you've worked with Fish and other bands like that. Fish being, you know, a band that does ticket artwork. I mean, the art of the ticket is now going to be no longer almost. Mm, right, because it'll all be digital and things like that. Everything. You can't get a physical ticket anymore. It's a bummer. Right. You, were, you were slinging those things but from a, behind a desk. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, um, we had some adventures. You know, it was kind of like one of those uh, – not non-glamorous minimum wage jobs. Yeah. And so we sort of felt we were entitled to the best tickets since we were selling these things. So I had front row center for the Rolling Stones. So you were able to get the hookup through that job? 
Well, we would punch them out on a machine and we would just take the, we'd just buy the tickets, the first ones that came out. Um, I was in the front row center for Prince um, and a number of other great shows, but it was, it was kind of crazy. That was the, you can't really see it, but that that's a Prince poster. That was the last show he played at the Fillmore before he passed away. And I waited, they announced it that day. I waited, I went, I'm about a mile from the Fillmore. I took off work. I went straight there and I waited like the old school days. You had to wait in the line for the bar and I got one ticket. Wow. Uh, He played two shows that night and we're talking about Minneapolis, right? But he played two shows that night, back to back. First show started at midnight. Wow. Wow. So were you at the first one or the second one? First one. It was like a Tuesday night and they announced it on the, it had to be like, you know, this is 2014, 13. So at, I don't even know if Instagram was really a thing at that point. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, I heard it. And I just, I, I'm like, fuck it. And I did. Um, yeah. And I, that's the, actually the first poster. That's number one. Um, wow. Nice. That is a pretty, that's a pretty great story behind I, That's a story behind that too, but whatever. But uh, so wait, so you're the original ticket scalper. <laughs> well, I wasn't scalping. I was just sort of, getting them for myself. Um, the manager actually got fired because he didn't realize like you could pump out the tickets from the machine, but you had to make the balance equal at the end of the day. And he didn't have the money, but so he just put them in the safe and thought he'd pay for them the next, the next week or something. And then he got caught. And then eventually they took the Ticketmaster machine out of our, out of our store. <laughs> wow. That's why that's so funny. So then yeah. you end up in Seattle, months before that place would kind of change everything. And then, so you're kind of coming, you're like when you're early twenties, you made twenties at that point, kind of just stuck there. You're there. Yeah. Yeah. I must've been, let's see, 24 when I moved to Seattle. What part of Seattle? Um, I lived on uh, lower Queen Anne. Mm -hmm. Uh, I lived on, uh, I lived in, my favorite place to live there was in Fremont. I lived in this place called the Fremont Artist Foundry. And it, oh, was, wow. it was this industrial type space that this guy who was a sculptor built with like maybe a dozen um, live-in artist studios. And uh, that was just fantastic. I mean, because all these people doing this cool stuff and just big space where you can just put paper on the wall and paint and draw. And that was great. That was in Fremont. I also lived on Beacon Hill. I lived on Capitol Hill. I moved around yeah. quite a bit. Oh, yeah. even though I was only there for four years. Yeah. We were, I was just in Seattle a couple of weeks ago. I love that. I love that city. Um, so when you said, you said you kind of, that's when you started doing this style of artwork too is when you kind of got to Seattle. I mean, what were your influences back then? Cause you know, your artwork reminds you of some people, but I'm kind of curious to who, who are, you know, who are your influences then? Well, I, uh, when I moved to Seattle, I really moved there because the woman who was my girlfriend, who's now my wife was living there. So it was, I was moving for love, but, uh, I got there and there was this whole explosion of music and culture. And in the same way that that bands were coming to Seattle trying to get a record deal. There were a lot of cartoonists who were coming because of Fantagraphics, the alternative comics publisher, to try to get a deal to do a comic book for them. Um, and then there were, uh, there was like very little money in Seattle, but a lot of artistic talent. So there were a lot of designers. Um, a guy who became a real mentor to me was named Art Chantry. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's uh, he was the art director of a 
a weekly um, music publication called The Rocket. Okay. And um, he really gave me my first chance to do illustration when I got to the city. Um, and so I learned a ton from him. And he was a guy who just, he absorbed influences everywhere. And from like old pulp novel covers and old record album covers and weird ads and magazines from the fifties and sixties and things like that. Um, and, and so he kind of, in a way taught me to just broaden my sense of what influences should be and just to kind of like absorb everything I could. And so between that and then living in this town that had all these cartoonists and the Fanographics comic book, underground comic book, alternative comic book company. Um, I just, I was just getting hit with all this stuff and, uh, and kind of incorporating it into my own style. You know, I think about that time, I probably felt like, I don't know that I have a style, but the more I kept absorbing influences and building it into my own work, my style just sort of naturally developed, I guess. And was, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know if I'm saying this correctly, but what was cartoon the medium that you were originally kind of drawn to? I mean, did you grow up reading comics? Yeah, yeah. I collected comic books. Um, I collected like superhero comic books when yeah. I was young. And when I got started drawing because, you know, I, I probably initially started, I would like trace the cover of a comic book. Yeah, yeah. And then I would try to draw it on my own, like look at a cover and try to copy, you know, try to draw Spider-Man in a pose or something. And then eventually started making my own comic books with my own characters. Um, and then I started branching into like editorial cartooning. Um, uh, when I was in middle school, my cartoons started getting published in the in the community newspaper. And in high school, I was the cartoonist in the newspaper there and then in college. Um, so, uh, and I, yeah, I just love, my parents actually had kind of a mini library of books on cartooning. And it's, it's only been in recent years since my parents had passed away that I've kind of inherited them that I realized when I was growing up, I sort of thought everybody's family had that. Like, doesn't everybody's <laughs> family have a bunch of peanuts and met my family and uh, cartoonists? Yeah. I, and I kind of took it for granted, but those definitely had a huge influence on me too. So what was the comic book scene like in the early nineties? I mean, I feel like it did it. It seems like an art form that kind of, you know, just like music, it goes through waves kind of, you know, it ebbs and flows in popular culture. Where was it when you kind of landed in Seattle? What, what was happening with it then? <clears throat> well, the, the, the line that was, that was used in a lot of articles about comics were comics. They're not just for kids anymore. And it became such a cliche. And it was also something that was so slow to catch on. So when I moved there, there were people very earnestly, people like Dan Klaus or the Hernandez brothers who do Love and Rockets or Pete Bag, who lived in Seattle, who did the comics book Hate. Um, they're some of the biggest names, I would say, at the time. Big meaning big within an underground sense. I mean, yeah. at the time, it was still a totally fringy thing. Um, so the fact that, like, movies have been made off of Dan Klaus's comics, uh, like Ghost World, you know, that, that, that just changed everything. And, and now, you know, schools have 
library sections of graphic novels. I mean, back then that did not exist at all. Yeah. So, and, and you, you couldn't buy comics or graphic novels in a bookstore. I mean, it was, it was, it was very fringy. Um, I went to the San Diego comic convention in 1994. Um, I actually put together this fundraiser kind of charity comic and I tried to market it and sell it there. I got a whole bunch of people to contribute uh, their artwork to it. Um, but going there was sobering because it was like, and it's still sort of that way. I mean, superheroes are dominate everything, but um, I think independent illustrators and cartoonists have gotten a little, at least a little bigger in stature, you know, um, people like Chris Ware and stuff like there's, there's a, uh, I mean, in the, in the broader sense of the culture, they're, they're very high in stature, but within the scene of the comics conventions back then it was super marginalized. And I think now some of those people have risen and, and they can have a more prominent presence. I mean, was the goal to be the next, you know, like King of DC comics? I mean, was that the goal back then? Or you said a lot of people were moving there to get their stuff made. I mean, Seattle, you know, people were doing things there. Yeah. I think, I think Fantagraphics was sort of like an up and coming publisher. And so if you wanted to do something where you were the author that wrote and drew your comics, Mm -hmm. as opposed to sort of the assembly line method of the superhero comics, where you've got a writer and a penciler and an inker and a colorist, you know, if you wanted to just be the auteur who was doing it, Fantagraphics was the, one of the biggest publishers there was for that, even though that said, you know, they didn't have much money and yeah, et cetera. But I think that was a, a real attraction. So um, the same way if you were like an indie, you know, punk band and you wanted to be on K records or something, you'd move to the Northwest. And, um, so there's, there was sort of a parallel there, I think, you know? Yeah. So you're in Seattle, early nineties, the whole, all that shit pops off. Not sure how involved you were with it then, but can you remember, were you getting involved with art and music at that time? Or did it take a couple of years to, for you to kind of get, I mean, were you approached by some local bands? You know, how, how did you get involved in that scene? So I, I started by, um, I got involved with a startup magazine. You know, this is before the internet. So if you were ambitious and young and you wanted to like make a statement like you'd do a zine and this was a little bit of a step above than that. It was a, it was an actual magazine, like an arts magazine. And, uh, um, and then we had like a benefit. So I made a a poster for the benefit. Okay. had some bands in it and that kind of, that was the first thing I did. And then um, I also started, I was really had to be scrappy to try to make a living as an artist. And so one thing I started doing was working for this publication. It was like a, uh, it was a newsprint publication that would put out a compendium of, of, uh, of like political cartoons and comic scripts. And then I worked with the guy who was selling the ads and then he would approach bars and places like that and say, well, if you want to add drawn in a cartoon style, here's a guy who could do that. So I would be like, making an ad and getting paid in food or beer or yeah. concert tickets, you know, yeah. and then it's, it started to kind of overlap where I was just meeting people. And, uh, there was a bar called the rebar in Seattle and a guy who was kind of in charge of their promotion. And I met up and I started doing some posters for them. Cause it was a real, 
there was a real part of the culture in Seattle in the early nineties that, um, you know, posters would be put up on telephone poles Yeah. Oh yeah. and, uh, and all over town. Right. And so it was, there was this kind of thing where, um, you would look and see which design, Oh, there's a Jeff Kleinsmith poster. Oh, there's an art Chantry poster. Oh, I see that's, Cyclops, you know, these different people who are Justin Hampton, you know, different artists were designing posters. And as an artist, you'd be keeping your eye out for who's doing what. Oh, they did that concert, you know. And um, and this was all just like black and white Xeroxes that were just stapled up. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, so I started doing some that way. And then a really interesting thing happened. This woman ran for city council on the platform of that she was going to clean up the city from these ugly and dangerous posters that were uh, a danger to people working on the power lines because the posters were, I mean, it was just a ridiculous thing, but it, she won sadly and she got posters banned so that you couldn't put up posters like that anymore, which was a real blow to the culture. Oh yeah. But in a, in a paradoxical way, which is interesting, um, because people could know designers could no longer make posters that would just go up on telephone poles or in public places. Um, this one club called Mo decided to put out an oversized newsprint publication once a month that had each page would be like a poster for a concert that was coming up. Oh, wow. Okay. And so Art Chantry, the guy I mentioned earlier, he became, he was the art director. So he would pick and choose who got to design the posters um and how many posters i mean you you said it was once a month publication yeah so and it was pretty big it was like probably like double the size of a newspaper so that each page was like a poster size kind of and some and some pages you'd open and there might be two posters sideways or there might be one giant poster you know it it varied and it was mostly black and white maybe there was a like one spot color here and there um and I did one poster for them and it was just a smaller one that was black and white. And then I did a second one and the owners of the club said, oh, that poster is so cool. That deserves to be printed in color. So they got a hold of a screen printer and they said, you know, we want to print this in color. So they, this was how I did my first color silkscreen poster was all because of this anti-postering ordinance that had been. And you were only doing black and white up until that point? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and it was a poster for, uh, a band called material issue. Okay. Um, I don't know. Do you know them from Chicago? No, I know. Are they, are they still playing? Well, no. So okay. it was, um, the band was material issue and they're oh. from Chicago and they were kind of part of that kind of alternative rock wave of the early nineties. And, um, part of what I would get for doing these designs is like a free ticket to the show. Yeah. Um, and I'd get like a little bit of credit to get either food or beer or both. Yeah. Or so the day of the show, I go over there cause this is my first big poster. I'm kind of excited. And, um, you know, I'm drinking a beer with a few friends and then I notice that the, the tour bus is outside Yeah. and I'm like, Oh wow, that's pretty cool. And I should go say hi to them. So I go out there and I <laughs> knock on the tour bus and the manager comes and he's like, yeah, what do you want? And I said, 
hey, my name's Ward. I just wanted to say, like, I designed the poster for the show tonight. Um, and then he said something like, yeah, they never cleared it with us to make posters with our name on it or something. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, I'm just trying to be a nice guy. Yeah. I said, well, I just thought I could come over and say hi to the band, you know, since I'm really excited to do this poster. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, he's like, no, they don't want to talk to you. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Um, and so I went back in the club. I'm like, well, that's kind of weird, but I, they just sort of brushed me off. And, uh -huh. and then we were just chatting with some people and some other guys came over and we're like, well, who are you? Or what are you doing? Like, oh, we're, we're playing tonight. We're on the, yeah, we're kind of bummed though. Cause our name is not on the poster. And I was like, oh, they didn't tell me, you know, that you guys were playing. Um, what's the name of your band? And he goes, Weezer. <laughs> and they were just like a no unknown band at that point, but wow. they went on to be way bigger than Material Issue. And they're yeah. like, yeah, the, these guys are real jerks. They, you know, they won't let us go on their bus and they don't talk to us or socialize with us the whole time. Yeah. And That's wild. So that had to be what, 92, 93? That was probably, that was 94, I think. Yeah, okay. Because, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, Weezer, they're an interesting, they have an interesting history because they weren't, you know, they weren't really a band for that long before they kind of whatever. Um, but I, I almost got an internship, uh, after high school, I immediately started working. I did audio stuff forever. And I almost got, when I first started, I almost got an internship at Electric Lady Studios. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, yeah. So I was in that room where they recorded the Blue Album. That's where I did my interview in the live room, uh, which is cool because there's some really cool footage of that band recording that album, at least photo, uh, photo wise. Wow. Uh, interesting. Do you know, was it Rivers that talked to you? I think so. Okay. Yeah. Right on. It's cool. my memory. Yeah. It's, it's yeah, yeah. a while back now, but yeah. Sweet. Sweet. But so then how, did, so then how do you start working with the bigger bands? I mean, how did that kind of come about with that stuff? Well, um, <clears throat> I think I did a few more silk screen posters in Seattle. Um, but it was also right at the, the precipice that I was getting ready to move. And, cool. um, because my wife and I got married in 94 and we, and about six months later, we sat down and talked and decided we wanted to move to New York city. Um, I think it had always been a goal of mine as much as I loved Seattle. Yeah. I would pick up Rolling Stone magazine and say, why can't I work th for them? Like, how do I get them to hire me to illustrate things for their magazine? I really wanted to do the record review page was one of my big, their things. offices were in New York at that time. Yeah. Cause they started in SF, right? Yeah, they did. Yeah. 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 But um, they were in New York for quite a while then. Yeah. I don't know when they moved there, but at least in the eighties, I would think. Yeah. Um, so, um, so when we, when we left uh, Seattle, we decided to make the summer kind of a road trip. Um, and we went through San Francisco and uh, we're just kind of trying to figure out what to do, you know, looking around like, well, what's there to see in the city? And I found some listing like in a weekly newspaper or something about an, a gallery, art rock gallery, um, which doesn't exist anymore, I don't think. But um, San Francisco. In San Francisco. Well, it's funny you say that because they just opened up within the last three years in Lower Heat, a uh -huh. fantastic art studio dedicated to poster concert rock art uh Sweet. yeah 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 we, we oh yeah but yeah um now that 
I want to say it's called the, I can look it up on my phone, like the Hate Art Center. I've been a, a multiple times. They have fantastic stuff. Um, yeah, I'm sure some of your stuff will probably end up there at some point. But uh, all right, cool. Yeah. So, all right. So you're in SF and you, what was, I'm sorry, what was the name of the place in SF? It was called Art Rock. Okay. And um, uh, is, is the place that, that's there now, is it mostly... Is it both vintage and new posters or one of the yeah, other? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's always rotating. So they're, every two to th- two, three months, they'll, I mean, it's SF, right? So it's interesting. You know, th- this is something I guess we could talk about it now because, you know, I want to pick your brain about this. You know, I'm an avid poster collector, you know, big poster guy. And you don't see a lot of stuff from the 60s and from the 70s and from the 80s. And I don't know if it's just because it never survived time or if the art form just wasn't really happening. So like you'll go to that place and you'll see, you know, like this fucking awesome you know 1978 rolling stones at you know whatever and you're like but you don't see a lot of that stuff just in general even like you know on google images and shit like that um i mean i I don't know why maybe you could answer that question but uh they have all that kind of stuff um yeah yeah i think i think you know like the fillmore posters from the 60s and stuff those are pretty celebrated and definitely um, but yeah, the, to me, it seems like there's a period from the 70s through the 80s where it's a lot less uh, prominent, you know, and then it seems like it really got bigger in the 90s. Exactly. Um, kind of where you started doing it. Um, yeah, but there's that time, there's there's not a lot of shit going on, especially hand-drawn concert posters. Yeah. In the 60s, especially, have you ever been to the Fillmore in San Francisco? I've walked by, but I've never been in it, sadly. As a, as a poster artist, you must at some point. Well, I'll take you to a show there. Because upstairs, they have all the posters. All of them wow. from the original ones. Wow. Like, you know, you know, Mike Bloomfield, 1966, with the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. I mean, the OG stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds fantastic, oh, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah, for sure. Um, wow. Yeah, so to get back to your story, so you want to have the goal of working at Rolling Stone, ideally. So New York City, mid-90s, that's what you want to do. Yeah, and um, so we're going to head out there, but we're traveling around first. We come through San Francisco. I read about this art rock gallery. I'm like, I really want to go see this. Let's go. Can we go check this out? So we go down and you know, it was full of great stuff. And uh, there was a guy named Phil Cushway who ran it. It was his business. And he both would market and sell classic, like Fillmore posters and 1960s psychedelic posters and uh, produce and sell new posters. You know, he was kind of, uh, he would work with artists and get them to design posters um, and then was selling them out of his gallery. And he had a catalog, you know, again, before the internet that he, you could be on a mailing list, you'd get a catalog every few months or something like that. And I was like, man, this is what I want to do. And so I connected with him right then and there, you know, it was serendipity that I just happened to be passing through San Francisco and happened to see this place. Yeah. And so um, I started doing a number of, posters with them uh i did quite a few so i did one for beck and pavement and sunvolt uh morphine a number of bands in the 90s and uh it was really fun so that that kind of extended my um my uh my my color silkscreen poster designing uh career for sure and then when i got to new york and i started getting these jobs with art rock 
part of the deal was I would get a bunch of them. And so then I could use the posters as promotion. I'd meet an art director and I'd bring them a poster, say, here's my latest poster. Oh, wow. Okay. And they'd put it up on the wall and then they were trying to assign an illustration assignment. They'd look on their wall and go, Oh, what about that guy? You know, and then they'd call me and I'd Is that how it was done? I mean, is that how it's still done? (laughs) I think now there's, there's a lot of, it's a lot about social media too and people seeing things on Instagram and, Uh um, but back then I really felt like I didn't want, I never hired an agent or anything. I wanted to meet the art directors in person. So I'd go to great lengths to find connections so I could like get an introduction to somebody and then I would give them something like, here's a poster. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm going to ask kind of a question. Yeah. You know, when you say the art director, do bands hire these art directors? I mean, how does that process work when the bigger bands get in touch with you? I mean, you know, are, there's some, there's an intermediary obviously between the act and the artist, but, uh, I, I should, I, yeah, I should clarify. Yeah. So the, so the art directors I'm referring to are, uh, like editorial art directors. So oh, yeah, okay. Stone, for instance, or, oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, magazines. I did most of my work was with magazines back then. That was kind of my bread and butter. And the posters didn't pay a lot, but they were just fun. And I had a lot of artistic freedom. Yeah. Um, and when I was doing them with Art Rock, Art Rock would coordinate with like the promoter of the show and the band and all that stuff. So they would just come to me with a deal already set and say, hey, we want you to do a poster for this show. And I'd be like, awesome, you know. But then there were some other cases where um, Pearl Jam, for instance, I had a real direct connection with because I had met them in Seattle. Um, like, I mean, I didn't meet the band per se, but um, I, w- I mentioned earlier that I was doing a charity comic book in 1994. So this was a, there was a kind of a right-wing um, attempt to pass this anti-LGBT legislation in the state of Oregon. There was a documentary about it called No on Nine, I think, about how they defeated that but that was at the time that was a big thing going and this same right-wing group was uh planning to come to washington state and try to pass the same legislation there and i woke up and read about it and i was like i can't believe anybody would vote for this because the newspaper the story on the front page of the newspaper had a poll that said if this if this bill was presented today it would pass and it was like really dispiriting so i was like what could i do about this and i just I mean, it's kind of a crazy idea, but I just pulled out a piece of paper and made a wish list of what cartoonists would I wish to have in a fundraising comic book. And so, um, you know, I called them and got over 40 people to contribute to it. And I had to have benefit concerts to raise money to publish the book that was then supposed to raise money for the cause. (laughs) And I I made a poster for the concert and sold that, you know, everything was going towards trying to raise money for the whole thing. And when it got down to it, I was still short of some of the money to publish the comic book. And I was brainstorming, like, what could I do? And I thought, why not ask Pearl Jam? Um, well, actually, one thing happened before that. I should I have to back up. So in, I think it was 93, uh, Pearl Jam was going to have a free concert. And they, and they told um, the local radio stations, you can become the sponsor, like the local radio station sponsor of the concert, 
if you give us a proposal for some project you will do that's anti-hate. Um, and one of the radio stations proposed a project of doing these murals and uh, they won the competition and they became the sponsor of the concert and they asked me to do a mural. So okay. I, had done this, I had done this mural um, that apparently was on stage with Pearl Jam. I didn't get to go. I wasn't able to go to the concert, but it was apparently on stage with them when they played, oh. which is cool. And so I thought, well, I know that their, their feelings are against hate. And this comic book is all about being against hate. Yeah. Maybe they'd be interested. So I had to kind of work connections to figure out who to talk to. And Pearl Jam ended up um, paying the extra money. Oh, wow. Uh, to get the comic book published. They just donated it to the project, yeah. which was yeah. super cool. Yeah. And so then I kept in touch with them and I did some work for um, uh, Jeff Amet. Uh, he has a side project band or he did at the time called Three Fish. He's the bass player, right? Yeah. And um, his brother, Barry Amet, has this company called Ames Bros. And back then they would do all the graphics for- Wait, the poster the artist Ames Bros? Yeah. Well, that's that's Jeff Amet's brother. Yes. Yeah. I have um, one of my favorite posters. Oh, nice. Yes. That was uh, cammed in 2010. Um, okay. Wow. I did not know that. Very cool. Yeah. 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 So they're they're still going strong in Seattle. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, they do a lot of Pearl Jam work still, but they do other stuff like fish and yeah. things like that. Yeah. They're awesome. Super nice guys. So I kind of kept in touch with them and then slow, you know, I kept kind of hinting, you know, I'd love to do a Pearl Jam poster someday if you ever, if you ever need an artist. And um, so they, they gave me the chance and I ended up doing a number of them over time. And uh, so that was a case where it was really a connection directly more with the band. Um, so these posters would come to me in all different ways. Sometimes the promoter would, would ask me to do it or, Sometimes I would meet the band and ask them, you know, I'd love to do a poster for you. And they'd say, okay, how about this one, you know, or something. And this is while you're in New York, right? Yeah. Yeah. I did the bulk of my color and silkscreen posters when I was there. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to ask the question a lot of our listeners want to know because it's a historical piece of art. Now, how did you get involved with our, uh, our favorite band fish? How did that one even come about? And how did, and, and Halloween too, I mean, legendary, legendary. Yeah. Yeah. I felt so lucky. I mean, I think I'll tell you, I did a, um, I had a crazy project in, uh, 97. I was, uh, you know, as I said, I got to New York and I was pounding the pavement and I was trying to meet art directors of magazines and things like that and try to find ways to like get my foot in the door. And I went, I, I had met this guy who had been at Esquire um, and I kind of worked my way into meeting him. And then he left Esquire and he was at Money Magazine. So I called him and went over there, even though I thought, I don't know, Money Magazine doesn't seem like my style, but <laughs> I'm looking for work anywhere. And if you have a connection, you might as well follow it. It right? is, yeah. Um, so I went over there and he said, yeah, I don't know that your style is quite right for this magazine. He said, but you should meet this guy that I met on the subway. And he gave me the phone number of a guy he met on the subway. I called him. <clears throat> he was working at what was now the new very hip, very new, up-and-coming 
a design company for Broadway theater. Um, and they had just done Rent, the, the play Rent, the musical Rent had just come out. And the way that they, before that, theater design had gotten really staid. You know, the, the posters for theater got really boring. And Rent came out and just looked totally oh, yeah. village, downtown punk kind of. And it just was a shock, right? Mm-hmm. And they wanted to kind of follow up with something like that. And I showed them all my concert posters and they hired me. And so I ended up doing the poster for John Leguizamo's Broadway show, Freak. Which he had a, was that a movie? It, it, well, Spike Lee ended up filming it for HBO later. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So it started out as a play. Yep. Yep. It was okay. a one man show. Okay. And great show. And my, my artwork was uh, uh, similar to my concert posters. It was like bright, bold day glow illustrated poster that just jumped out at you. And it was all over the city and it was on the marquee and it was in the subway and it was full page ads and newspapers. And it was, it was a huge break for me. I was so lucky that this worked out. But after that, I just started to get kind of a, an avalanche of work. Like, cause I could meet people and just say, I did the freak poster and they knew what I was talking about. So all this kept coming to me. And um, it was around that time then, because it was 98 of that I did the fish poster, that they contacted me out of the blue. And I'm, I'm not even exactly sure how they found me, frankly. Um, but uh, they came to me and said, you know, would you, would you be up for doing this poster? And I was like, yeah, that sounds awesome. Um, it was a little bit different the way they worked. Um, because uh, with other places it was a real it was a real low budget thing and a big part of it was as the poster designer you would have total creative freedom for the most part um i mean pearl jam sort of had like they would maybe kind of veto things if it didn't seem quite right or there's a little bit of art direction going on but the art rock posters i did i just sort of did whatever i wanted and sent it and they printed it you know so that was that was kind of nice fish was much more um hands-on and they kind of had lots of ideas about what they did and didn't want. So they, and there was like a big contract, you know, none of the other stuff I did had contracts or anything like that. And, um, they, so they, you know, I gave them a certain number of sketches, I think maybe like five or six sketches. Um, and then they chose one and they chose, uh, you know, I, I had fun making them because Halloween concert, there's a lot of Im- fun imagery you can play with with that. Um, and uh, in Vegas, in Vegas, too. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. And then it just it, it went quite smoothly. Um, Did you have any idea who they even were? I, uh, I I was not somebody who was like listening to them a lot at the time, but yeah. um but, you know, I was aware that they had a cult following and, yeah. um, and that they were, you know, kind of a jam band and everything. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it was fun. I mean, it's, it's too bad in retrospect. I didn't try to go out and see the show. <laughs> I was, well, I was gonna, that was my next question. Did you go to the show? I didn't. No. They sent me some, some, some cool things about the band, like from previous shows and things. Sure, of course, kind of, of fun course. to have. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
But uh, yeah, and I've always I've always wanted to do another one. I approached them at the 20th anniversary a few years ago and said, "Hey, it's been 20 years. Might you be interested in having me do another poster?" You know, and uh-huh. they've continued to kind of put me off. And okay, I mean, I mean, not I don't necessarily mean in a bad way. They just say, "Well, you know, we'll keep you in mind." You know, that kind of thing. But yeah, gotten another chance. Yeah, well, t- I'm going to rein in the fish nerdiness, but there's a couple of quick little questions because that's a print that's kind of, you know, throughout time now has become a, you know, a pretty sought after print. Didn't you, you just had, you had two of them, right? You were holding on to and you let go one of them recently, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I just have one left now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, it's just wild how some of these prints kind of live on throughout time. And that's, you know, and all these like, you know, I'm geeking out on all the Facebook groups and stuff like that. But that whenever that print pops up, people get fucking stoked about it. Oh, well, that's yeah, no, they, they love it. They love it. So that was a positive experience. Then kind of going forward, you started now you started your own thing, right? That's that's where the your website and your kind of comic series begins. Yeah, yeah. With in terms of of uh, like fish artwork, you mean, or just in general, anything? And, uh, it was your website, Sudden Impact, right? Or the the comic. Um, it, it started out as a comic book originally. So, um, so I started, uh, you know, around this time when after I got that freak poster job, and I started getting so much work. Yeah. And I realized I needed a website, and then. Um, my wife decided to come work with me because I was getting so much work. It was hard to stay on top of the business side of things and everything. So we became yeah. business partners and we did, and I was trying to think of like, what's a good name for the, for the business. And a friend of mine who's actually a concert promoter who I met through designing a poster for one of his shows. Yeah. Um, he suggested, well, what about Sutton impact? How about that for a name for your company? And I was good. like, that's pretty cool. Like, I like that. Like, a play on sudden impact, sudden impact. Okay. So um, I made that the, uh, the name and, and my website and I had a logo and everything. And then I was, you know, in addition to doing concert posters, editorial illustration, I also all throughout this time have been a cartoonist where I'm writing and illustrating my own cartoons, um, a lot of political cartoons, things like that. And um, I had a cartoon in the village voice at the time and, uh, it was originally called schlock and roll because, uh, I started it for the rocket in Seattle and it was a cartoon that was really making fun of music for the most part. Um, and then that was when it was only like once a month or twice a month, but then the village voice wanted me to do it every week. And so then I started to feel like I need to broaden the scope because I don't know that I can find something to comment on in the music world every single week. Yeah. Um, and then and then the art director suggested, why don't you change the name instead of schlock and roll since this isn't just about music anymore? Why don't you change it to Sutton Impact? So I changed the name of the strip to that. And then I came out with a book of my comics in 2005 and that, that was the name of the book too. So that's okay. where that name comes from. Um, and then more recently I've been, you know, selling prints and things. Uh, I had done, uh, I've been hired around 2000 to do some illustrations, one for Rolling Stone of the band fish um, that I illustrated them like in a fishbowl, kind of like the band. Yeah. 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 And um, that was on the contents page of Rolling Stone, which was like a huge, 
huge project I was super psyched about. And then uh, Entertainment Weekly did a special issue about fish. Yeah. And I, and I did some illustrations in that, including the band members riding a giant hot dog like they'd done in concert. And the fish fans kept coming to me like, can we, can we buy prints of this? Like, and uh, so, you know, at, at some point I was like, there's a lot of people who want a print of this. So we made a limited edition run of those two, the fish bowl and the hot dog. And we sold them and that was a learning experience. Um, and uh, In what way, what do you mean? Well, it, it was kind of uh, crazy that, you know, there the way, you know, we would, we would ship them through FedEx because we really wanted to make sure they would get there safely and we paid for insurance, but then they would get damaged and FedEx wouldn't cover us because they said the packaging wasn't their, their exact packaging, you know, and so we had to like bite the bullet and remake the prints and send them to the people who got them damaged. And so there are, there are OG damaged prints of those out there somewhere. Potentially, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we basically told the people who had the damaged ones, we'll replace it if you agree, you know, to destroy the damaged one because there yeah. should only be one with this number on it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because um, they were all limited edition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and now in recent years, um, it was funny because uh, just a few years ago, the same type of thing started happening that some fish fans were coming to me. Like, do you have any more prints? Like, do you have any more artwork that you, and there was like a drawing that I had done for entertainment weekly that was never published and people liked it. So I made a print of that, of Mike Gordon with a vacuum cleaner. Yeah. Um, and, well, there's also, and there's also the one with Trey bowing down to a thing, but, but so, but you had already mentioned the band earlier. Why pavement? What's the, what's the connection there? Well, that one was published in Entertainment Weekly. Yeah. And it was illustrating, you know, there was, it was, uh, the article was telling all these fun facts about fish. And one of them was that, that Trey uh, reportedly loves Slanted and Enchanted. Yeah, album. yeah, yeah. Okay. I, and so <laughs> that was an illustration to accompany that item. Um, and yeah, people se seemed to want it. So we made a limited edition print of that one too. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so I'm, you know, I may do some more things like that. I've been thinking about it a lot. I've got, a, I've got a bunch of ideas, and I've connected with a silkscreen printer in town, um, and I've got this great digital printer I've already been working with too. So uh, I'm, I'm trying to kind of shift the way my business works, you know, um, because I'm lucky that I can do something I love and and eke out a living at it. But it's uh, the 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 landscape of media and things like that is constantly shifting. So I have to, I have to kind of figure out how it works. Like a lot of the magazines I used to work for, I used to do a ton of work for mad magazine and it essentially doesn't really exist anymore. Like it used to anyway. You so, were writing, you're, uh, what time, when were, what years were you writing for that magazine? Um, let's see. I started doing stuff for them probably like the early mid, probably the mid two thousands. So like around 2005, 2006. So that's after the television show? Wasn't there a TV show? Am I making that up? Strangers with Candy? Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I was thinking of something else. Yes, 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 yes. So that's when you were oh, doing Oh, that. I did work for Strangers with... You mean yeah, the yeah, Mad yeah, TV yeah. show? Yeah, okay. The Mad TV show. The yeah. Mad TV show, yeah, it was disconnected from the magazine. It was like... A okay, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I remember that TV show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
I think they bought the rights to to the name for for television, and but yeah. there really was no connection between the people on the magazine and the people who did the TV show. Oh, definitely not. I mean, they had, that was a wild. I mean, they had already Lang on that show. That was a wild cast of people. Oh yeah, yeah, that yeah. Yes. But anyway, I'm kind of rambling here. Where was I going with that? Well, you mentioned Strangers with Candy. Tell people how you worked with them because they're people, obviously. Yeah. Know. So that for people who might not know, that was a TV show that Stephen Colbert and Amy Sedaris and another guy, Paul Danello, um, created. It was sort of their passion project. And it was uh, sort of a satirical takeoff on the old cheesy after school specials. You know, it was like this sitcom in high school, but there's a, kind of a, a, a former drug user ex-con woman who decides to clean up her act and go back to high school as a middle-aged, middle-aged woman. And it's just, it's absurdist and hilarious. It's almost cringy to a degree, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's sort of gained kind of a cult following, you know, it's kind of an underground hit. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I got, that was another thing. I just got so lucky that I was hired to design the animated opening to that show and work with JJ Settlemeyer, who's, uh, kind of a legendary animator who had done all the Saturday night live animation and those. Oh, wow. Movies. Yeah. And he did Beavis and Butthead, the Beavis and Butthead show. And when um, you say he did that, what do you mean? What does that mean? His studio produced it, did all the animation. Yeah. Um, and so it was just, I mean, that was fantastic. I got to meet Stephen and Amy and Paul and, um, you know, I'm still, uh, I lived in the same neighborhood that Amy Sedaris lived in and I'd run into her on the street a lot. And I've seen, uh, Stephen Colbert. I've been to his show. I, uh, and he's just such a nice guy. I mean, it's, it's great when there are people who you respect so much artistically and that they're still really good people at the same time. You know, it's, it's really demoralizing if you meet one of your heroes and then they're a jerk, which happens. But They say you're never supposed to meet your heroes. I, I don't, and the last person I want to meet is Paul Simon. You know, yeah. so like <laughs> it, it, it would ruin a lot. You're just uh, afraid. Yeah. yeah. So uh, how do you, how did you navigate me? How are you seeing the landscape now? I mean, how has art changed? I mean, technology has changed so much stuff, you know, has technology even changed the way you do your art? I mean, you know, so much has changed in the last just 10 years. Yeah. I mean, I really, the, the social media, I just was talking the other night how I feel kind of trapped by it. Like I can't imagine doing what I'm doing without using social media. And I'm not even necessarily somebody who uses it the best, you know, I'm, I, I can, I can only do so much of it, but um, cause I'm just, I basically do it all myself, but uh, I feel like when I do a cartoon or when I create anything, I, I put it out there. Like that's the way to get the artwork seen is to put it on social media, but it ends up taking a certain amount of time, you know, as everybody knows, and that, that gets to be kind of wearing, you know, there's moments where I think, what if I just didn't do any of this, but then I don't know, I feel like I'd be sitting in a bubble and nobody would see my work. So, um, but at the same time, it's also great because there, it allows interaction with people who like my work. I was going to ask that. Yeah, do you, do you are you interacted with the people, your fans, and the people who kind of comment and stuff? Yeah, I do. I try to. I try to. Um, it can be brutal. Maybe, maybe, maybe I do it too much, but I try. I try to respond to people quite a bit um, and engage and 
because if people like my work and they reach out to tell me, I feel really flattered, you know, it's, uh, I'm honored. Um, and yeah, I just kind of feel, but I'm, I'm thinking about all sorts of things now, like Substack. Are you familiar with that? Well, for writers, right? It, it, yeah. But uh, they, artist? I think Substack has been trying to branch out to cartoonists and bring them oh, in. Wow. So I've just been learning about that and I've been kind of considering maybe doing that, but. I mean, you know, people argue that Substack is saving the art form of journalism, uh, mm-hmm. you know, but I mean, especially, you know, you, you're as a political cartoonist, I think you'd be a hit in Substack probably. It would be, yeah, it would be fun. I'm just, it's, it's one of those things. It's like, I don't know. I so can just jump in and try it and say, yeah. I'm going to give myself six months to see if it works. And but, uh, but, I, but it's kind of unknown, you know, you know, the way the internet and online culture goes, you never know, like, it could be the next Instagram, or it could be the next MySpace. You know? I, what was the one recently clubhouse that lasted for, I think, three weeks? Ooh, ouch. Do you remember that one? That was about a year ago. That was like, where people, it was an audio only. And you would join these rooms and people would talk and have these, you know, but uh, I don't even know if they do it anymore. Um, wow. No, I don't know. Um, yeah. All right. Well, Ward, I mean, this has been an absolute blast, man. Um, I mean, we're wrenching in now. You said social media. Where can people get in touch with you? Do you do Twitter, Instagram? What's your handle? Yeah, basically just Ward Sutton on Instagram and on Twitter. And I think that's how you'd find me on Facebook. Um, yeah, that's I'm just on all those. And can people reach out to you? Do you do um, any kind of custom work? Do you do any commissions or anything like that? I haven't done a lot of commissions. Uh, I'm not necessarily opposed to it. It's just not something I've gotten into much, but um, I'm always interested to talk to people. Um, I'm working on a, I'm working on a piece that a group, a group of like poster collectors contacted me and, said, Hey, would you want to design a poster? And, you know, we just want something you've done and it would be kind of for our group. So I've been kind of working on something in the, in that realm. So I'm, I'm open to lots of possibilities. You want to design a new logo for this podcast? <laughs> Could be. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, let, let's make it happen. We would love that warp. Okay, cool. Thanks right. so much, man. Um, yeah, so that's it. Instagram, Twitter, and uh, people, if you don't know, please check out his stuff. Um, you know, it's been great talking to you and uh, all the best, man. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me on. It's great to talk to you. Most definitely. Enjoy the rest of the day. All right, you too. All right, bye-bye. Take care.